Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com The Telegraph Telegraph. Podcasts order book of a billion and a half dollars and by march the 20th we had an order book of virtually zero in all my years as a hopeless art student i never thought i'd end up as the carol vorderman of covid if we don't do a deal now i personally think that faith in democracy could be irreparably shattered has been difficult to negotiate. I think it looks as though, to me, a deal will be done. One. We have liftoff. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. So, another blast off in our rocket of right thinking. And do we ever need a trip to Planet Normal? because this is the week government scientists began to look like failed graduates of the Noddy School of Statistics, (laughs) according to Andrew, who wrote to us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. We think that's unfair. To Noddy. (laughs) Manchester's gone into Tier 3 lockdown, with ministers claiming intensive care beds will run out by mid-November. But ICU occupancy rates in both Manchester and Salford are better than this time last year, despite Covid. And with COVID cases in Manchester now falling, why push one of the UK's largest cities into ever more restrictive measures, stirring up a massive north-south divide? So, Alison, why is the government doing this? And what's going on in Wales? I've actually counted it, Liam. We're 202 days into three weeks to flatten the curve. How's it going for you? (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering whether it's time to open the hatch of the rocket and just go out. You know that scene in Gravity where Sandra Bullock and George Clooney are just dangling from a cable from the spaceship? That's slightly how I feel this week. Look, I think the dominant thing that's coming through really for me was it's a bit like the Four Nations Rugby Championships, isn't it? All the four corners of the United Kingdom are trying to outdo each other in who can be barmier about lockdown. It's a four nations scrummer. There's, there's plenty, <laughs> plenty of punching going on. <laughs> Lots of punching going on. So my own dear Wales, which I wrote about in my column this week, oh, we're having a 16-day fire break, Liam. All non-essential retail closed, no travel whatsoever. Because there are parts of the economy we haven't destroyed yet, look. So shh, we've got to just... That's over the engine. Over the engine. Jones the steam. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> He's brewing up some tea in Ivor's butter. <laughs> Listen, Ivor the engine would be better at running the country than Mark Drakeford, I can tell you. So Wales is doing that, despite there being parts of the country where you're more likely to be run over by a sheep than by COVID-19. And then we're across the water to Northern Ireland, level five restrictions, Liam, for six weeks, 
even though the official paper that helped shape Northern Ireland's coronavirus regulations shows that closing pubs and beauty salons only has a moderate impact on transmission rates. And the Belfast Chamber Chief Executive, I was pleased to say, said that Stormont's new lockdown is based on shockingly flimsy evidence. And then, of course, north of the border, we've got Wee Nicola going for the goal kick, really. Basically, you're, you're mixing your sports up now. I know, <laughs> I know. You know, you She's know. She's going that... for the drop goal in the final minute. Oh no, that was Johnny Wilkinson. Anyway, carry on. Exactly. So there's the, <laughs> there are the poor Scots going into lockdown until next summer, or possibly forever, or until they let them have another independence referendum. And there we have the poor England, which can't really afford a total lockdown because it's too busy picking up the tab for the three other countries. So altogether you know, a completely mental picture. And as you alluded to, we've got, I think South Yorkshire has just gone into tier three. The government has forced Manchester into tier three, despite a valiant fight, rearguard action by Andy Burnham. And I something just caught my eye, Liam, was a tweet from Manchester Young Conservatives, which was swiftly deleted, but it said... Boris has lied about helping us in the north. It's time for him to go. So it's all kicking off, as they say, up north. It certainly is. And we've been deluged with emails from Planet Normal listeners, listeners who have basically become amateur statisticians and and data Mm. analysts. And I think a lot of the country now are. Because if you look at the numbers, it really does beg the question of what the government strategy really is. Average UK weekly deaths from respiratory diseases, Alison, now are in line with the average over the last five years, Mm. despite COVID. And across the country, the occupancy of ICU beds, that's intensive care unit beds, is just at 60%. That's well below the average for this year. National ICU bed usage is around one eighth what it was at the peak of the pandemic in early April. And even then, the NHS wasn't in danger of getting to capacity, was it? There are around 500 COVID patients on NHS ventilators as we speak, of around 5,000 available. And that's before we crank up the now well-rehearsed emergency measures, the Nightingale wards, and all of that. So the government is really being challenged now. And you have a lot of people now discrediting and smearing the Great Barrington Declaration that we've talked about for a long time, Mm. smearing the idea that some uh, reputable scientists are backing that kind of age-stratified approach rather than a general lockdown, even though they are. They absolutely are. And instead of coming back with new evidence and new justifications for why we're going into what is now going to be a second national lockdown de facto, Mm. given what's happening in the rift between the North and south rather than trying to justify that with actual evidence of the historic data and the patterns the government's just doubling down on the scare tactics it's just doubling down on matt hancock saying protect the nhs he's even got that slogan on a mask that's not good enough i think more and more people are saying why 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 are we doing this i think the government is in serious danger now of losing public opinion losing the consent that you need to lead a country in the middle of a pandemic Yes, the Telegraph had a big story on Monday. It was the front page splash and it said, protect the NHS leaves patients paying the price. And it's the sort of stuff we've been going on about, Liam, on Planet Normal, isn't it? The absolutely devastating cost of protecting the NHS 
They did an analysis of about 200 different health conditions and they showed that hospital admissions had plummeted by up to 90%. And you know we've now had people from the Royal College of GPs writing to the paper saying, oh, no, we've been fully open for patients. And you think, you liars, you liars. You've had hospital admissions plummeted by up to 90%. You haven't been referring people to hospital and you haven't been doing your job. Actually, we had an email this week, which was from Incandescent of Carmarthenshire. And I thought, that, that's, that's me. That's me every half an hour. But the thing that absolutely, uh, you're lucky you weren't anywhere near me. I just went mad. <laughs> I've learned to keep my distance. <laughs> I've got the suit of armour in the back of the car for the occasional <laughs> moments when we do meet. <laughs> well, the talk about the fire break. So listen to this. The NHS spokesman responding to the Telegraph story about all these terrible common cancer treatment falling by two thirds. An NHS spokesman said, I'm going to read this out. At the height of the first COVID peak and lockdown, some people chose to postpone care. (laughs) But since then, hospital admissions have rebounded and cancer treatments are now taking place at well above usual levels. Some people chose to postpone care. Would you say that was a description? I mean, that is the arrogant unaccountability of these people. It makes me sick. It's absolutely disgraceful. We know there are thousands of people who cannot access the NHS and the NHS's response is to say, oh, certain people chose to postpone care. And this is what we're up against. Those 1.2 million women who haven't had the breast cancer screenings that they were meant to have during lockdown, oh, they chose not to have them. How many women do you know that choose not to have breast cancer screenings? I don't know any. Not at all. And as you said, Matt Hancock has the absolute brass neck to warn that the pandemic could cause the implosion of the NHS. And this is what they do every time. Boris at the press briefing is saying, well, I'm bitterly sorry. Uh, He's always bitterly sorry. But, you know, I have to save lives. And you think it's wearing a bit thin, that excuse, isn't it? Because what has the NHS been doing for seven months, if not preparing for this influx of cases. So I think, as you say, people are looking at the figures and saying, hang on a minute, that doesn't make any sense. The NHS has certainly learnt a lot from the first wave of COVID, and that's why we're so much better prepared for any seasonal increase in respiratory diseases, including COVID, as we go in to winter. There's loads more PPE equipment, for instance. We've learned how to use blood thinners, oxygen therapy, steroids to treat COVID, whereas before we were focusing on ventilators, which were more invasive and brought problems of of their own. But before we disappear back into the morass of of statistics, Alison, two things, actually three things, because my kids have just started uh, cooking egg and bacon downstairs. So so if you're (laughs) going to go off into another sort of five-minute rant, let me know and I'll go down and stack a bacon butty and come back. (laughs) The other two things I want to say is, firstly, Sue Cook, what an incredible guest last week, an incredible response on, on our emails and on social media and so on. You were too modest to say, but she actually said in an email to us, she's a big fan of Planet Normal and thinks of the podcast as her friend now, which is a great accolade. Mm. But I was disappointed last week that you didn't try the Sue Cook Welsh accent. So let's hear it. Come on, Carmarthenshire, how's it go? <laughs> and why don't you talk about, in your column, this is the second thing, you talked about this Welsh word, is it TWP? It looks a bit like twerp. You talked about uh, yeah. the government's policy amounting to a Snowdonia of twerp. What does that mean? Top. 
top. Um, well, Reese, who's our producer, also from my part of the world, Reese will tell you top is um or oh, don't be top, Liam, and that's I think you're top. You know, it's but it's but it's basically right. means you know. F- f- <laughs> So it's actually twerp isn't twerp isn't bad. Um, oh, yes, <laughs> I did a bit of a Welsh accent earlier on for you. But what did what did make me smile was um, Sue had been telling us about the Welsh aunties, the Auntie Olwyn, yeah, who was crocheting those. Do you remember those mats that they were always doing for dressing tables? The seventies was full of them. Everywhere you turned, there was crochets, <laughs> this and crochet that. <laughs> But after Wales gave up on the coal industry, crochet became one of, you know, it was replaced the coal mining industry as one of Wales's great kind of industrial <laughs> uh, industrial heartlands, really. But yes, I think Sue got such a great response because there's a, not just a genuine person, but a proper journalist. Absolutely. Asking, hang on a minute, why aren't they asking this? And something we've seen, Liam, I think, is a failure, often by the broadcast media, which we talked about reading out rather than reporting. And what we've been seeing this week is some of the regional press getting going, haven't we, with the Manchester Evening News starting to... They've done some great statistical work, I have to say. It's great to see the regional press actually really getting into this crisis and reporting local information for local readers. Long may it continue. And they've also, the Manchester Evening News said that the health authorities were now refusing to disclose up-to-date information about bed occupancy. And why would we think that might be? Now, you're not going to believe this, Liam, but Velma has actually been getting requests. So actual listeners have been been asking Velma if she could come up with some information for them. And I think in all my years as a hopeless art student, I, I never thought I'd end up as the Carol Vorderman of COVID. But um, this is this is what we've come to, is that... There's a chat show pitch in there somewhere, I can... <laughs> it certainly is. But let me... Last week we had some good news, and I feel really strongly, let's have some good news for all the people who are still frightened. So this week we heard... There's no sign of a second coronavirus wave. There are lots of small ripples, but we're nowhere near that giant tidal wave that swept so many away in March and April. And as you said, the ONS is showing that deaths are just 1.5% above the average. But I think what's really interesting, Liam, is that COVID seems to be taking the place of flu and pneumonia, which would be killing a lot of vulnerable people at this time. There'd usually be 1,600 weekly deaths from flu and pneumonia in October. And deaths from coronavirus, flu and pneumonia are running at 1,621. And that means, as you said earlier, there's virtually no increase in respiratory deaths. And there is no second wave. And it even seems like we might be seeing figures going down. They're going down slowly, but they are starting to go down, particularly in London, which probably had a lot of infections that weren't picked up in the first wave. Did you see the shameless Sadiq Khan this week demanding that the 10pm pub curfew be lifted after demanding that London go into tier two, which meant that the thing he was demanding be lifted happened? I mean, what an operator he is. Yeah, and that's precisely the reverse of the position that he was adopting in March. I think amidst all this kind of political turf war that's going on, Mm. very opportunistic from Keir Starmer in recent weeks, I think. I think Andy Burnham is on much firmer ground. He's, He's fighting for a decent support package 
for his locality. And that's exactly what elected city mayors are supposed to do. But at least now we're starting to have a discussion because it's been politically expedient for Andy Burnham to say, hang on, these official figures aren't right. Why are you locking us down when actually ICU beds in Manchester are not being used to a greater extent than they would any other year? Why are you provoking panic? So you're having national figures now wielding the kind of statistics that we've been highlighting on Planet Normal in recent weeks and months so a public debate is now starting. And I do think, I mean, I we've said this before, but there does seem to be some kind of mood shift happening. If you think opinion polls back in March, 95% of us were backing lockdown. Now it's barely 50%, Alison, and the questions in those opinion polls are loaded and we're living now in an environment where the government is stoking up fear. You've even got Patrick Valance now saying that any future vaccine when it does come, may not be any good. Yeah. It may only be 50% effective. So there you've got one of the government's top scientists creating the intellectual room for manoeuvre potentially for Boris to say, we can't wait for Godot, as the Telegraph's cartoon in Wednesday's paper says, we can't wait for the cavalry. The vaccine may not happen. It may not be any good when it does happen. It doesn't really make sense to vaccinate a whole population against a disease that most of them have no symptoms of or most of them are relatively unharmed by. That's just crazy. It's not like polio. It's a completely different disease. So there may be room that's being created by the scientists for the government to shift into moving towards a more age-stratified approach, not where elderly and vulnerable people are banned from the streets or not where they're forced into lockdown, but where the rest of us get on with our lives and we help the vulnerable to shield if they want to, according to their own common sense. In my view, that has to be the best way forward. I did think that Sir Patrick Vallance intervention was terribly revealing, wasn't it? I mean, he did it quite quietly, but it is basically a screeching U-turn. So back at the beginning of March, Liam, before they swung into lockdown, Patrick Vallance said COVID would end up being like a seasonal flu. It would be endemic in the population. and We just have to learn to live with it. And then, of course, they went full tonto. And now he's basically saying COVID's going to be like a seasonal flu and we're going to have to learn to live with it. But Matt Hancock, meanwhile, is burning-eyed, messianic Secretary of State for Health, still talking about waiting for the cavalry. So I think it'll be quite interesting to see who will out. I'm I'm just disgusted with a pack of them, really. I, I find it very awful, but I do start to hate this government. I really do. I think that the harm they're inflicting on on millions of people, mainly the very old and the very young, is is absolutely despicable and based on, on nothing. And my man of the week, Liam, we talked about this, didn't we? The splendid leader of Hartlepool Borough Council, Shane Moore, well, Shane said that he'll tell Boris to sod off if he tries to impose tier three on his region. And I thought that's more like it. Let's have some British fight back against this bureaucratic, totalitarian idiocy, because I think that we know all the economic harm that's coming, don't we? Since lockdown, Wales has lost 30,000 jobs. I love my country, but it's a small country and it has desperate pockets of poverty and it has raging youth unemployment. Half of all 
uh, working age unemployment in Wales is amongst young people. And the loss of jobs that's coming, just so Mark Drakeford can cock a snook at London and the hated Tories, is, it is just despicable. I'm sorry, it's despicable. So who have we stowed away in the hold of the Planet Normal spaceship this week? When we started out back in May, we said our guests would come from across the news cosmos, politics to showbiz, business to the arts. We haven't had too many business guests though, so here goes. Because 75 years ago this week, in October 1945, Joseph Cyril Bamford opened for business, making agricultural trailers from an old stable block in Staffordshire using scrap metal salvaged from air raid shelters. Today, the same business still bears his iconic initials, JCB. Alison, let's hear from Lord Anthony Bamford, Joseph's son, who took over the business in 1975 and has built it up from one single Staffordshire factory into Europe's largest construction equipment empire, spanning 22 factories across the globe. And I started by asking Lord Bamford about his earliest memory of his father. I remember going to my father's first teeny-weeny little factory, which was actually in some stables uh, near where I am at the moment, which is at our main main plant. And I remember playing with... He had, I think, three three guys working with him, and my mother was taking them their lunch, and I remember that as, as well. You must have known he was a special man, though, a really talented engineer, <laughs> and also a pretty sharp businessman, even in those days. Well, I don't know. I, I, I'm talking about when I was five. I didn't know what a, what a businessman was, but I knew that my, my father made things, and, um, and I didn't know what engineering was at that age either. But he definitely made things, because he'd show me um, the trailers that he'd made and then he'd modify the design and he'd show, in a way he treated me as a as a grown-up right from early on from my first memories you became the chairman and managing director in 1975 you were barely 30 did you feel ready to take over what was already then a world-leading company jcb was already by the mid-70s producing iconic vehicles for a huge market around the world and already in their distinctive yellow. Yes, but it was tiny to what it is today. I think our turnover then was about 30 million, 40 million, something like that. One plant only here in Staffordshire. And now we have 11 in Staffordshire and 11 uh, elsewhere in the world. And we were producing, I think, 6,000 machines. And uh, last year we produced almost 100,000 machines worldwide. You were quite young, though, weren't you, taking over? You must have been pretty daunted, given that your father was such a huge influence on the business. And there's you, a young man, taking over what was already a pretty serious company. (laughs) I was daunted, but, but not completely daunted. I knew at some time, probably for a year before, or a year and a half before, uh, that my father wanted to leave. And have a different life. And really, he was involved in every aspect of the business. It was a, a one-man band, and I, I couldn't run business in that way. Uh, but he, he obviously did, because he grew up uh, creating it. But I, I was scared, and I remember the very first time, it was uh, October the 23rd in 1975, and I addressed 
much of our workforce, about 300 of the workforce I addressed, and I told them what had happened. And my God, I, I think I probably had a stiff drink after. Uh, it, it was scary, but I was running the sales and the finance side of the business in for a couple of years before my father left. And I'd got a good team, all older than me, uh, and they took on worked very closely with me. I was very lucky to have very good people. And hopefully, you know, we still have, which is great. You've now got 22 factories around the world on four continents. India, famously, which is your biggest market now. Brazil, the US, China, Russia. But you've still got 11 factories in the UK. Why are you so committed to UK-based production, Lord Bamford? Is it just a sentimental decision or is that really a commercial decision? I think it's good sense. We are British. I'm English. I'm from this neck of the woods, which is the Midlands. I think there are very, very good people in this part of the world. We're near to the potteries where there are, obviously they were making china clay into pots and and, uh, teapots and all sorts of things like that. But there were quite a lot of engineering businesses there and we're near Derby as well and we take people from both those towns and Burton-on-Trent and I think they're extremely good people. They're hard-working. They are, in my view, uh, this is not political but they're, they're conservative with a sm- very small C. Many of our senior people started as apprentices with with our business. Now, India has been a huge episode in the history of JCB, hasn't it? I think you once said that was probably the best business move you ever made going into India. And against your father's advice when you launched in India back in the late 70s, just a few years into your stewardship of the company, why has India been so transformative for JCB's business, Lord Bamford? I think it was right place at the right time. India, at the time we went there, was 77, first started going there, and 78, and we started the business with a partner in in 78. The partners, all businesses, all foreign businesses, had to be majority owned by Indians, and our business was originally. And now it's 100% um, belongs to, to our business. Just after Mrs. Gandhi, in fact, she might have been around, but it was very much uh, a very restrictive way of going on. Everything, you had to get licenses to do everything. You had to, you know, to buy steel, you had to get licenses to have your telephones. You had to get somebody to be a queue waller for you and go to, <laughs> to get, a, get in the queue to actually get a license to have a, another telephone in your business. It, it, was, it was that restricted. People's salaries were restricted to, I think, the maximum a senior director could earn was £350 a month. So uh, needless to say, many of the people had... 10 or 20 jobs just to, uh, to get those salaries up. Looking back on it, it looks very clever. It was a clever move. It did transform, has transformed our business. But at the same time as starting our business in India, well, just before that, I travelled in China on one of the first government trade missions to China. And this was 70 Seven seventy six, just after the Cultural Revolution. Yeah, wow. 
little red books and everything. Oh, every, red books. You couldn't tell the difference between a boy and a girl. Everybody wore green or blue. And uh, their childrens were, if they had children, a child each, they went in, into the creche. And all businesses, every business, uh, even people on street corners, worked for the state. They were all state-controlled. And I just thought, you know, how could we possibly uh, have a partner and start a business in China? Hello, listeners. I'm Christopher Hope, interrupting your podcast listening to tell you about another show I know you'll enjoy. It's called The Trump Card, and it's a three-part series for the man who understands President Trump better than most, his friend Nigel Farage. Wow. What a job he did, Mr. Nigel Farage. Thank you very much indeed. Mr. Farage has been to the White House more than many world leaders. He then shook me by the hand. He said, thank you, thank you. He said, you will be my friend for life. So who better to tell us what Donald Trump is like when the cameras are off? You're dealing with somebody who, if he thinks you're a friend, he becomes a friend of yours. And as another unpredictable election draws near, what's his Trump card? Search the Trump card wherever you're listening to this podcast or go to telegraph.co.uk forward slash Trump card. Moving on to the, the present day, I mean, try and describe what it's like when you're overseeing 22 factories across the world, focused largely on the construction industry, and then COVID hits. It must have been quite scary as your order book collapsed, I guess. Was this the biggest challenge you've ever faced in the 75-year history of JCB? Do you know, I think it probably was. Um, March the 1st, we had an order book of a billion and a half dollars. And by March the 20th, we had an order book of virtually zero. Wow. That will focus the mind. It concentrates the mind. <laughs> yeah. It does go. Our business is quite brutal. Though. People either want a machine to do a job or they don't have a job and they don't need a machine. You know, it's not like cars where people see it as, a, as an investment. It's not. Uh, they're not collected. They are there to do a job. And it's a brutal world. It's frequently political, particularly housing and even infrastructure is, is political as well. You kept hold of most of your workforce, though. I think I'm right in saying your global workforce has gone from about 15,000. You're still around 12, 12 and a half thousand. So you haven't shed that much labour, really, have you? Obviously, it's unfortunate that you have had some layoffs, but you're workforce for the most part remains intact doesn't it and it does and right at this moment in the uk we are actually recruiting again the market is up right at this moment at the same sort of level as it was this time last year the demand for your machines globally yes not everywhere but the us has been remarkably strong yeah and that's a big market for us russia is a good market brazil is Mm, is a good market, but it's looking very sensitive at this moment. And mainland Europe, even with pandemic in Europe, uh, construction seems to have carried on. Infrastructure has carried on. Uh, you know, I think there's a, a desire by governments everywhere to keep economies um, running if they can do. Uh, and that makes a lot of sense to me. But then 
they needed machinery. Thank goodness. Was there any point during COVID, Lord Bamford, where you feared for the future of your company? My fear was that this would carry on and on. And do you know all business? I mean, first of all, businesses can be vulnerable. And certainly if you're, you're a manufacturer and you're not making anything, after a bit you can't carry on anymore. So in that respect, it is scary. But America didn't suffer, so that was a good market that carried on. And India, the same thing. India has carried, carried on. It did, all of them dipped in, in March. I think that was uh, maybe an overreaction. It, it was an alarming time for, the, for governments around the world, wasn't it? Now, JCB is famously developing clean technologies. You, you build a lot of diesel-powered plant. I know you're very alive to clean tech and your clean diesel technology is very much at the cutting edge. But what do you see in terms of the future? Could we see JCB plant powered soon by, by hydrogen, for instance? Well, you know that fossil fuels are badly regarded and for all sorts of reasons, uh, even though internal combustion engines now are extremely clean. We make diesel engines. Uh, we make upwards of 70, 80, 100,000 diesel engines a year. Interest, the efficiency of those diesels now, is um, we're using 50% less fuel than we did 10 years ago in what looks a similar engine. So the efficiency's got better, the emission levels have gone down, but fossil fuels have to be get, got rid of. In the car world, uh, small cars seem to be veering towards electric power or hybrid power. And we were the first people in the world to actually have battery-powered small excavators, mini-excavators working in production. And we've now been doing that for almost two years. And we have a whole range of electric machines. But the trouble is that batteries are quite cumbersome. They're also quite heavy. And now, much of our machinery, it doesn't matter too much. The weight doesn't. As the machinery gets bigger, there isn't the space for them. Uh, and that really is a, a problem. So we have to look at other forms of, of power than, than batteries. And batteries are not the solution say for, for buses or trucks, because you reduce the payload too much mm. compared to another form of power. So we are actively looking. We've got a prototype, a big excavator, working with hydrogen. Wow. And hydrogen is definitely, and this is green hydrogen, incidentally, which means that it is the power comes from wind. And the wind is converted into electricity, and the electricity then converts the water into hydrogen and oxygen. So we see this as definitely the fuel of the future for our type of machines. So how long could it be until we see a famous JCB backhoe loader powered by hydrogen? Well, it does pose all sorts of problems, as you can imagine. You cannot go to your petrol station at the moment and buy a few gallons or a few pounds weight or a few kilos worth of hydrogen. Uh, but you will be able to. And the great thing about hydrogen is you fill it up, the same as you do filling your car up with petrol. Mm. It takes three minutes to fill a car up, and it will take three minutes to fill a hydrogen 
truck up or a, a JCB. Aside from the National Infrastructure Network, Lord Bamford, how long until you've got a backhoe load or even in prototype, a piece of equipment of that size that could be powered by hydrogen? Can I just say, watch this space. Uh, we, are, we have got a proper hydrogen excavator working at the moment in a quarry near here that we own. And it, it's working with hydrogen. And the only thing that comes out of it is water, a little bit of water. There's no, uh, no emission, there's no soot, there's, there's no particulates. It, it is, that's all that comes out of it. And it's silent as well. Let's just talk a little bit about politics, if we may, Lord Bamford, in the last few minutes. You supported Brexit. How do you think the government has been doing in its negotiations with the European Union in recent months? Are you pleased with what you've seen? I don't know the end result yet, uh, Liam, so I can't really comment on it. Um, in terms of negotiating, I think it's bloody difficult to negotiate with 28 other people. Not mind you, our cabinet's 30-something people, isn't it? So how you actually end up with a consensus, I think, is difficult. I think it has been difficult to negotiate, and I think we probably went the wrong way a few times in the past. I think it looks as though uh, a deal will, to me, a deal will be done. But common sense... Uh, doesn't necessarily come into politics, does it? And how do you think Boris is doing in general in terms of dealing with COVID? You have been a supporter of his in the past. Um, he famously drove that JCB excavator through the brick wall or the polystyrene brick wall, if you like, during the campaign. Do you think he's handling the COVID crisis well? Well, I don't envy him one little bit. And don't forget, there's no living prime minister or president, for that matter, that has gone through this a pandemic and also gone through negotiating with Europe and pulling out of Europe at the same time. Nobody's done that. Of course, they will have made mistakes as time has gone along, uh, and they could still be making some mistakes. But in the main, I think he's done a very good job. I think it's such a pity, though, everything with our system is on the shoulders of the Prime Minister. You can hardly delegate with our system. And so I think it's very tough. And the opposition's job is always to oppose. So they're always niggling at him, aren't they? But I, I think he's a great Prime Minister. Uh, he, he did almost die or something. He was very ill at one stage. I think he's come through that. It's gone on longer, though, than I think anybody would have thought. You know, can you say when it's going to end? You can't, and nobody can. We don't know. It, it is still scary. That's the pity. Lord Bamford, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Congratulations on your 75th birthday and the 75th anniversary of JCB. Thank you very much, Liam. So JCB is a big UK success story, of course, Alison, celebrating its 75th anniversary, unveiling a prototype of a big hydrogen excavator that's that's a really good news story he's also a very influential tory donor and and political observer behind the scenes he's sticking with boris isn't he yeah i thought it was a real coup of you to get him liam i mean such an incredible success story i i really liked him talking about the region where the firm came from and he says that many of his top people started as apprentices at jcb and that they're conservative with a small C. And I kind of felt the sort of swell of pride then. I mean, 
in the kind of post-Brexit world, that's what we're going to need, isn't it, is the ingenuity and resourcefulness of our own people. I think that the whole the Wuhan flu, as it were, has revealed our over-dependence on far-flung parts of the world. And I hope that people like Lord Bamford will lead us into a future where we're developing our own. But yeah, I, I thought what he said about Boris, it did make me pause for thought. I mean, I feel very angry with him about the handling of the pandemic, but Lord Bamford sounded a slightly kinder note, didn't he, about someone who's dealing with a global pandemic whilst trying to leave the European Union with 28 countries which want to make it as unpleasant as possible. I'm actually going to write up this interview for the business section of The Telegraph. It should be out in the next couple of days particularly because of what Lord Bamford said about hydrogen. And in that write-up, we didn't talk about it in the interview, but because he is so into British manufacturing, such a believer in British manufacturing, mm. he worries about our lack of engineers. He says, you know, most of our really top engineers, they go and work in the city and they design financial derivatives and all the rest of it rather than doing mm. engineering. Mm. So in Roster in Staffordshire, which is JCB's global headquarters, They've actually created a, an engineering academy for 13 to 18-year-olds where they do a special program. They work harder than at normal schools, longer hours. And a lot of those kids, and there have been 2,500 of them over the last 10 years since the academy was founded, have gone on to work at JCB or Rolls-Royce, which is just up the road, or, or Network Rail or the National Grid. He's really trying to harness a new generation of British engineers in order to get our manufacturing base back up where it should be. We're still a global top 10 manufacturer, though we now employ far less people in manufacturing in general than when he took over JCB in 1975. It was also interesting what Lord Bamford said about Brexit. And we are now seeing this, aren't we, from Michel Barnier. Just mm. as we're going to record Planet Normal, Barnier is saying a deal is now within reach. Sterling has gone up above 130 to the dollar because it looks like a deal is now happening. I still think there's some way to go. I still think Macron's going to find a way to get really angry about fishing and all the rest of it. I didn't know that French fishermen land 80% of the cod in the channel. I, you, you have to laugh that they think that a leaving present is... <laughs> we give them 39 billion quid and they take our fish. I want to ask you, Liam, are we being sold a rat here? Is this a pantomime, all this, oh, they're not going to do it, oh, you know, we're playing hardball, all this toing and froing? Is it basically that they've sort of done a deal already and that we're going to have to swallow the very imperfect withdrawal agreement? What do you think, or is that being too cynical? No, I think however cynical you are, it's never enough. <laughs> I mean, that's my observation after yeah. you know several decades as a, as a journalist. I don't think you're being too cynical at all. Partly this is a function of trying to negotiate a multidimensional, multifaceted deal between over two dozen individual parties, as Lord Bamford highlighted, the individual EU members – in the kind of citadel of public opinion when everybody's spinning and backspinning with lashings of nationalism and chest beating and finger pointing thrown in. What you're now seeing, though, is people like me said from the very beginning and were lampooned that when it comes to it, you will get the German car makers, you will get the French food processors, mm. you will get the Italian furniture makers, you will get the Spanish winemakers saying, hang about, this is a huge market. It's also a very profitable market for us. Stop messing about, do a deal with the Brits because we don't want any of these WTO, World Trade Organization tariffs. That pressure is now being brought to bear. 
it's being personified in Merkel saying to Macron, look, just do the deal. Stop mucking about. In the end, I think Macron is going to have to listen to the older, wiser woman. And I think that's right. I do think there'll be a deal in the end. It may be, you know, sometime in early January. And I think what's amazing is just how little focus there has been on Brexit because of COVID. Mm. It may be that in that sense, the lack of like massive press obsession with Brexit may in the end make a deal slightly easier than it otherwise would have been. I have to admit, I've got slightly cold feet. You know, I've always been very gung-ho Brexiteer. But with the vast cost of COVID and then us hurtling towards this Brexit, and I know you're very relaxed about us going to WTO terms by the end of December and, you know, everything will be fine. It's a real concatenation of circumstances, isn't it, Liam, by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, we're a couple of trillion down from covid And I have to say, it it worries me. It doesn't seem like the ideal moment to be making this massive rupture, although I obviously want us to make as big a success of it as possible. Or on the other hand, because all parties know that we're already economically under pressure, it may mean that in the end, politics is pushed to one side and economic common sense does prevail. It may be that the countries involved try and make it easier for exports to continue Mm. rather than making it more difficult. I think it's a tough call, but in the end, if if we don't do a deal now or if we don't properly withdraw now after all the palaver, you know, Mm. we're over four and a half years since the referendum, I personally think that, you know, faith in democracy could be irreparably shattered. So let's have some reader emails. So many of you are emailing us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. Liam and I absolutely love all your emails and we do try to reply to as many as we can. We also feature half a dozen or so emails in our Planet Normal column, which appears in the Telegraph and online every Monday. Now, Here's one that caught my eye. You're going to love this, Liam, coming from a building family. (laughs) Hang about. This is from Louise. (laughs) A builder friend has 15 employees, so he got 15 COVID tests. He couldn't get hold of the people who were working on site, so he decided to do the tests on himself. You know what's coming, (laughs) don't you? The results came back. Six negative and nine positive. (laughs) So... That's how reliable our marvellous tests are. Over to you. What caught your eye, Liam? Robert emailed. He's a 76-year-old retired scientist and engineer. Much of the so-called science the government claims to be following isn't science at all, says Robert. Modelling has its place, as do statistics, but science constantly re-evaluates its theories as new facts emerge. It listens to all arguments for and against and has the capacity for multidimensional thought. The tragedy is... This isn't what's happening with our government. When I hear Matt Hancock dismissed honest attempts to analyse the data with we can't just let it rip and Boris declare this is the only way, my blood boils, says Robert. I've got an awful lot of listeners who know about engineering and statistics who are really share that point of view. Here's one from Caroline in Essex. So here we sit on the naughty step, tier two, with no idea what we have to do to get out of it. There is much talk that they needed a southern Tory council to throw under a bus to make it look not such a north-south divide. 
If they want people to support these serious impositions on our lives, the criteria for entry and exit need to be both fair and transparent. The next general election may be four years away, but it could be a bloodbath. I agree with that, Liam. I think the Tories, if they're not careful, are going to be out of power for a generation. Yeah, the leaders of Essex Council have been arguing to go into a a more restrictive tier against the evidence (laughs) of the cases in their constituency. This is from Barbara. This morning, 15 of us got together for the first time in weeks for our Monday morning keep fit session, she says. With all windows and doors open, we went through Brenda's well-worked-out programme to help us with some aerobic and strengthening exercises. Not only did we benefit from the exercises, but for the first time in weeks, we saw our friends again. Sue, a volunteer at our community centre, and Brenda had to wade through government advice together, negotiating the ever-moving goalposts. Please do thank them for bringing some sense of normality back into the lives of a bunch of 60 to 80-year-olds. Thank you to all concerned. So well done to Brenda and well done to Sue from Barbara and from us here at Planet Normal. Absolutely. This is a more serious one and this is really talking to the human cost. This is from the Reverend Adrian Davis came in earlier today. Things in Wales are even worse than you thought. Places of worship which had been open for only a few weeks without any surge in infections, certainly here in Pembrokeshire, are now closed again and will be on November the 8th, Remembrance Sunday. This means the people of Wales, who, as you know, Alison, are very conscious of family, will be unable to attend a place of worship to honour the dead and injured of our two world wars, something which has not happened in a very long time, if ever. Top. No, just a thoughtless, uncaring, godless socialist system in Wales. My goodness. You know, this Remembrance Sunday next month is going to be very tough. We've got an Mm. awful lot of citizens, haven't we, who, you know, to be honest, it may be their last Remembrance Sunday, their last chance Mm. to get together with former colleagues in service and to remember their fallen friends. An incredibly difficult thing for the government to navigate. And talking to the human cost, Alison, I know you've also been in touch with Robert, haven't you, mm. who's still trying to see his beloved wife, Josephine. They've been together since their teenage years. They're now in their 80s. What's the latest from Robert? Yeah, Robert's keeping in touch with us. He's so on it, Liam. He said, it seems to me that we are going to get submerged by the noise of all the doom mongers, although there is evidence that the government is going to run one of their famous pilots, which might give people like me key worker status. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> As I have said before. Key worker at 83. (laughs) Well, I think he'd do anything to smuggle himself into that home. As I have said before, I pose no greater risk to Josephine or any other resident than that posed by the staff. In fact, I pose less because I am in semi-isolation anyway. And Robert's got some really great ideas, Liam. One, if I was tested and kept myself isolated until the result came through, I should be able to go into the home and visit Josephine in her room. Two, I should also have the right to bring Josephine to our home for a few hours, providing we don't mix with any other people. Then when she went back, she should not need to be shut away for two weeks with no social contact at all. Quicker and easier testing is gaining momentum with much faster results, but that is not here yet. Great when it comes out, but it is not imminent. And for the likes of us, time is running out. And Robert concludes, So for the thousands of us with loved ones suffering from dementia, being with them cannot come soon enough. We are losing them bit by bit every day that passes. I wish you all so well on Planet Normal and hope the dire forecast terrifying the nation 
to not drown out the sweet voices of common sense. We love Robert, don't we, Liam? We do, and I know you're sticking with this story, Alison, and we'll continue to report, won't we? We will. To our listeners on Planet Normal who are, like us, absolutely shocked and completely behind Robert's efforts to see his beloved Josephine. Final email from me, change of mood. This is from Acacia, who's just 18. Thank you, thank you for Planet Normal, she says. It's so encouraging to hear from like-minded people discussing the current situation in the UK. Acacia's a college student in Scotland, and she says she's grown increasingly wary of the way universities and colleges are handling COVID. It's a recipe for destroying higher education and producing half-educated people later on, she says. Now, Acacia's taken the initiative. She's written to her MP, and in that letter, she outlines the difficulties of receiving one-to-one help when you're having lessons online, the lack of resources when you have online lessons, the kind of resources you usually pick up, the materials and so on when you attend in person, the mental drain from online classes, the difficulty of focusing, and online classes are often longer than ordinary teaching periods, and the lack of social interaction, Mm. which is all part of the college and university experience, even if you're not going away to university, and the impact on the mental health of young people. The college and university students of today become the nurses, doctors and teachers of tomorrow, says Acacia. Please allow us to go back to the classroom and get a full, uninhibited education. A great letter, Acacia, and more power to your elbow. I totally agree. And you know what I feel increasingly, Liam, is that the price for the pandemic and specifically the overreaction to it is being paid by our young people and by our old people. And in the middle are a bunch of I'm all right jacks who are wanting to guarantee 100% safety for themselves. And really, they have accused those of us who have questioned lockdown of being irresponsible. But I think it's... Oh, we're beyond the pale. We're nutters, aren't we? We're completely irresponsible because we look at historic data and analyse it dispassionately. But I think it's them now who are being selfish and morally irresponsible because they are condemning people like Acacia and Robert and Josephine to really blighted lives. And why do they have the right to be guaranteed 100% safety, which is a completely, you know, even I, a sort of Dimbo arts graduate, know that that is not possible. You're not Dimbo, you're Velma. You're Velma. (laughs) You can wear Daphne's wet look boots and still be Velma. We can get you some nice glasses. (laughs) We can get you something else apart from the orange roll neck. Though I quite like the roll neck look, I must say. You know my childhood trauma of wearing glasses from the age of nine. Very, very thick glasses and being called four eyes. I'm, you know, about Coke bottle ones. 50 years later, I'm still trembling about that. So that's it for our 22nd voyage now to Planet Normal. Strap yourself in for re-entry as we endure once again the madness of planet Earth. And keep the faith until next Thursday, when we'll be back for another blast off. Remember that every Thursday at 11am, co-pilot Halligan and I chat to fellow Planet Normal citizens via the Telegraph website. You just go to telegraph.co.uk forward slash community, click on the article at the top of the page and leave a comment in the comments section between 11am and 12 noon. We will reply to them. So please come and join us. Any questions about podcasts, how to listen, where to find the good ones? Check out the helpful article explaining all things podcast on the Telegraph website. You'll find the link to that in the show notes to this episode. And if you're enjoying Planet Normal, and why on earth wouldn't you be, why not leave us a five-star rating and a short review on Apple Podcasts? And big up the Scooby impressions. (laughs) 
I know you're writing a lot of those reviews because there's a lot of comment about... <laughs> That's you not don't... true. Look at the historic data. Look at the historic data. And as Planet Normal fades out of sight once more and Earth hoves into view, thanks to our brilliant producers, Reese Gunter, Louisa Wells and Elliot Lampett, and our editor, Theola Ludis. And until our next voyage, it's goodbye from me. You can do anything with statistics, Halligan, and it's goodbye from him. <laughs> <laughs> When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.